0: Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey, everyone. I hope you are doing okay. Um, the recent passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is bringing up a lot of complicated feelings for me, as I'm sure it is for many people. Of course, we must remember the shift in power in the Supreme Court is just one of many, many things that has been failing over the course of U.S. democracy. It means come this November, voting for the U.S. elections is important. But so are all the local elections and difficult discussions about what it means to exist on this planet where we are all entangled with each other. Yeah. Anyway, for this week, I am returning to an older recording I did with Vicky Chuang while I was living in Berlin over a year ago. Born in Australia, Raised by a half-Chinese Tijo, half-Vietnamese father, and a half-Chinese Tijo, half-Thai mother, Vicky grew up with an abundance of different cuisines and cultures. She lived in France for three years, where she worked in the fashion industry before moving to Berlin working as a teacher, activist, and artist. I met Vicky through a few Asian diaspora-centered events where I learned more about the work Vicky was doing. Vicky started Rice's Life, a project celebrating Chinese, Tijo, Vietnamese, Thai, and Australian foods. Vicky also leads a diversity and inclusion workshop series called Eye to Eye, which we talk about in our conversation. We also chat about her growing up in Australia, appreciating our cultural heritage, and how an unfortunate event at the Berlin Art Week helped lead her to the work she does today. Listening to this brought back many, many memories of my time in Berlin, and how far away it all seems now. In any case, as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and please vote this November.
1: Thanks for having me. I guess <laughs> you guess. Yeah, no, I'm happy to have you. It's a it's a weird like a sensation to be wanted to be interviewed. Have you have you not been interviewed? Sure, I have been, but it's also always strange. It's always strange. Yeah.
0: yeah. How has your day been?
1: Good. Uh yeah. Had a nice lunch with a friend, made oh actually Tao Tao Ho, who mm-hmm. is the founder of Dam. We I made her lunch and then we started to put together the zine that she's working on okay. for Dam. Uh that was really productive and just uh, doing my thing.
0: What is your thing? <laughs>
1: Right now, it's applying for funding. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Not so fun. Yeah, but I know that feeling. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, what I'm doing at the moment. That's what's taking up most of my time because I'm on holidays at the moment from the school that I teach at, so And you teach nice. kids, right? Yeah, at Alternative Freischule. I'm no cone, and uh, the kids are between 6 and 18 years old.
0: That's quite a range. That is is a it range. after school or...?
1: No, it's like a normal school. It's a private school, so it's like small, only 26 kids. And yeah, it's uh, we go up to grade 10. And of course, um, some students stay on longer, which is why the the larger age range.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Um, yeah, so you grew up in Australia, right? Yes. And your, uh, your mom was born in Thailand and is half Chinese, and mm-hmm. your dad is Chinese-Vietnamese.
1: Mm-hmm. So my dad was born in Vietnam.
0: How they meet in uh, in Australia?
1: Yeah, so my dad was a boat refugee, and my mother flew over, and they're both Chinese Tejio. And what is that? Uh, it's like a language in China from the south, uh, in the Guangdong province, close to Shantou, okay. uh, also known as Swatow, in Tejio. And a lot of people from this area speak Tejio. It's an ancient language, and they migrate. All over the world and there are a lot of communities in many parts of Asia, in the US, in Australia, in Canada.
0: Do you speak Tiju?
1: I do speak Tiju. Okay. Not well, but I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, what brought them to Australia? So your dad, you say he was a boat refugee. Why did mm-hmm. your mom fly over?
1: Uh, my f- mother went over following some family members who had work opportunities there and... With that particular prime minister, uh, I've forgotten his name, unfortunately. It's okay, I don't don't, know most of my history, (laughs) my Um, American history. Yeah, in that particular year, he allowed all people to to migrate and get attain citizenship in Australia. So that was within his year uh, in parliament, and Mm. my mother took the opportunity. And because they're both Chinese TGO and it's a kind of a small community and when you find this community uh you tend to connect a lot yeah and uh my father was working with my uncle and my uncle suggested that he meet my mother and they Uh, met it
0: was a a, a match your uncle's your matchmaker
1: exactly Uh, and they married three months after three months yeah uh, that's how it goes back then i think yeah crazy (laughs) yeah yeah
0: and so what was it like growing up in australia
1: it was interesting because it was split between Melbourne and the Gold Coast. Um, what go- is the Gold
0: Coast? You, you mentioned it. I didn't quite know. What is the Gold Coast?
1: Gold Coast is a place and it's pretty much like the Orange County of Australia. So beach babes, um, muscle dudes. Uh, yeah, just like a surfer town. Yeah. And so that's where I grew up from 10 to 21. And before that, I was in Melbourne from 1 to 10. Okay. Yeah within my school I think it was myself and two other Asian people because my brother and sister went to high school as they're older and this is when I started realizing that um the fact that I was good at sports really helped me make friends and um a lot of them would say things like oh you're not like the other Asians yeah mm -hmm. and you know these these I don't think of you as Asian exactly and they kind of like as you grow and try and search for your identity I think anything that Helps you fit into the tribe. You kind of grasp and and hope that anything that pushes you away from them is kind of covered by your commitment to fitting Mm -hmm. in. And yeah, I I realized how much I had done that after I had moved away from Australia. Hmm. Yeah.
0: I like to think I was ignorant.
1: Yeah, completely. I still feel like I'm ignorant. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's a continuous learning journey. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think. Well, I think for me, I was always a loner. So I always attribute it to just like, oh, I'm just a loner anyway. So then, and it could have been a combination of both. I was like a moody child. Mm -hmm. And I I always say if I were to meet my younger self, I would slap myself.
1: (laughs) I mean, growth, right? Yeah. Because of who you are back then, you are who you are now. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't imagine that though. You're so social.
0: You know, uh, I don't know. We're, I'm. Yeah, I don't know. People keep saying that. And in my mind, I still think I'm pretty reclusive and robotic. <laughs> okay. That's what previous people in my life have told me, that I I'm see. quite robotic.
1: Wow. Um,
0: yeah. So, yeah. And then, so then did you go to college in, in Australia?
1: I did. I finished my Bachelor of Business, majoring in marketing for my parents' sake. Which is really not. <laughs> what did what you want to do I wanted to study fashion
0: fashion which
1: is uh, what I did when I moved to Paris and left the fashion industry promptly after <laughs> simply because um, I loved creating and I love I still love creating however um, the industry is very toxic and problematic and I just simply couldn't stay within it
0: so you moved to Paris. To you, say you went to school or you just worked. I, I studied, yeah. Okay, I and just, you finished. Yeah,
1: okay. and then I interned uh, at a few fashion houses, and yeah, it was it was very challenging to go against my morals in a sense, and and work with people that I didn't necessarily get along with or agree with, and uh, which led to me making the very easy decision to move to Berlin after a holiday here.
0: What happened that? made you want to come here because um, well, this is not a fashion capital. No, exactly. in any
1: way I mean just like the mentality of people and how how people were so critical and challenged and challenged like the norm of society and were so free I felt it was a very mm-hmm. free city yeah and I very easily made the decision to to move here when was that oh uh, when was that Five and a half years ago, so like 2014. Oh,
0: wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, summer of
0: 2014. Um, was it hard to make the move initially from Australia to Europe?
1: Uh, I didn't intend to stay after my studies, but I felt like I wasn't ready to go back to Australia because I had found like a new me. I mean, in Paris, it was really strange because I was completely objectified and exotified, as an Asian woman,
0: and more so than Australia,
1: more so than Australia. I mean, in Australia, I just got racial slurs and and. Um,
0: do Australian white people not exotify Asian? I think
1: they too do, uh, but in a different sense where it's not as obvious. Hmm. Um, and I I I really had didn't have a lot of like partners in Australia. I would say, in comparison to my friends who are white. <laughs> Um, And then, yeah, when I moved to France, it was like, oh, my God, people want my body, which was strange and also nice. But then there was that conflict of being like, okay, you just like me because I'm Asian. Yeah. Um, But then it was like, well, I am Asian and this is part of me. So I guess you also like me. But at some point it became, yeah, too much. And then when I came here, it was really just like, yeah, there, there weren't as many stairs. Um, maybe still, here, yeah, hmm. maybe some microaggressions, but not as many stairs as on the Gold Coast and then Paris and then now here. It's like, it's almost like I'm, I'm getting into the right kind of community or society that yeah. accepts me or is not shocked by me. Um, of course I still like, uh, experience microaggressions but I would say in a less ignorant way. And I have such a nice bubble here that I'm always quite protected.
0: What do you mean by that? Like by your friends? Yeah,
1: my social circles, um, my my work environment, and where I hang out. Yeah, the spaces that I choose to enter. I mean, of course, I can't help it when I'm riding or walking through the streets.
0: And so how did you enter DAMN? Orientation and ended up starting Eye to Eye.
1: It only recently started, so this oh, really? time, well, a bit earlier. So, April last year, during Berlin Gallery weekend, there was a problematic party that took place. And I responded by having, uh, starting up a petition and then organized the event, I Am Not a Fortune Cookie. And, um, this is a party, or, or it was like a party, okay. but I also had like a, a talk and some performances. Um, can you describe it? Or, yeah, so I invited I think like eight con- 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 contributors to showcase their art, so VJ art, also sound art. Panel discussion with Zai Rong who's an academic and Sunju, who's a and also academic. And this is when I started to get in contact with Corientation. And through Corientation, I got to know Dam, which Tao and um founded. Uh, she's also a forced um a board member of Corientation. And, yeah, they are a critical cultural perspective of film and other forms of art and sociopolitical um, uh, views and opinions. And so they do events um, and other projects and festivals. And, yeah, they supported me in my endeavors.
0: So what, what was the problematic thing that happened in Berlin Art Week?
1: Um, it was called Happy Ending, the event. Okay. It was curated by <laughs> Kunigallery Gallery and oh, Danny Dyer. Exactly. So Kunigallery is like... It's one of the biggest galleries exactly in Berlin. Like yes. Europe renowned. Uh, so I was quite shocked that such a gallery would collaborate with people who curated and pres- like, um produced an event as such so it was called happy ending they promised massages and fortune cookies in the gallery yeah oh no it wasn't at the gallery so <laughs> it's stupid was that the
0: temple half error?
1: event no 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 uh, they used like a japanese shunga erotic uh, motive which is a beautiful form of artwork however they took it out of context and you know wrote happy ending on of, of it and it was like a Japanese woman. Like explicitly being fucked by a tiger, like you could really see.
0: There's a drawn image of it. Yeah, okay.
1: and um, so they said, yeah, happy ending. So of course, your mind goes straight to the submissive, like woman who is sexualized, Asian woman, and they also promise fortune cookies, which is American invented, and massages. And then they hosted it in a Vietnamese restaurant and they said they wanted to celebrate the Asian culture. And I was like, this is very problematic. You're continuously perpetuating like this idea of the Asian woman that uh, leads to cases of rape and assault and and other forms of of misfortune against Asian women bodies. And um, I asked them to take down like the event. So and um, so did many other people. Many people reacted. Uh, like an open letter went out and around. Um, people shared it and were really upset about it. But no one was really taking any action about for yeah. it. And I was really shocked. And I couldn't stand for this. And so. I started the petition and um, the petition was to ask for Koenig Gallery and Andy Diary to um, host an event, an open discussion and debate. And at first Andy Diary said yes and then they deleted the, the post and – never got back to me. Mm. And um, when I hosted the I'm Not a Fortune cookie event, it was my first intentions were to, let's say, educate the wider society of how problematic this is because a lot of people didn't realize that it was problematic. Yeah, they're just like, it's just
0: a joke. Exactly.
1: It's like, come on, you're being too sensitive. And so I um, decided to, yeah, do this event to educate. But I realized that um, the Asian diaspora actually really required such events and for for topics as such so sociopolitical topics and like stereotypes that that we endure so I thought okay I will do another festival well it turned into a festival <laughs> it was like a two-day festival in November and yeah this is where eye to eye came to life where I hosted my first closed workshop uh, which didn't go down well with some people I would say
0: well, I don't think I attended that. What what, yeah. what what happened?
1: So a lot of messages asking, like, why is it closed? And then, like, some white people trying to enter the space and me having to explain to them. Wait, that's what
0: people are angry about? Yeah,
1: that it was a closed oh. space, that I wanted to make a safer space for people of Asian descent.
0: Okay, all right. So, what was the theme of that, that particular eye to eye?
1: That one, that theme, the themes are always around racism. Um, and that one was more of a community kind of gathering, and we talked about uh, similar microaggressions and tools of to to better kind of deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, it was October. This was November. November, okay. Yeah. So and, I just
0: arrived, so I probably didn't, okay. I wasn't even aware.
1: True. And, yeah, that was really interesting. And after that, I mean, it was only an hour, and people wanted to keep talking, so... I realized there was a huge necessity for this, and so many people were so appreciative of the whole festival, of course, but specifically the the workshop. And then I left soon after to Australia for seven weeks for like spending time with my family. And then when I came back, I yeah wanted to do another one, and so I did. And that was
0: that one I attended. That was when we're with all the stickers on the charts and the graph. Exactly.
1: Right? Yeah. So that was April, I think.
0: So you were in Berlin for quite a while before you actually got part of this, all these different groups.
1: Definitely. I was trying to find my feet, uh, leaving the fashion industry slowly and kind of like attending more as an ally with all these kind of events. And I would say I became much more empowered within myself after my divorce with my ex-husband and um, started to get. More into fem- feminist movements and terminology and critical theory, and uh, this is when I started to realize that I am really capable of doing things, and um, maybe I'm a bit naive, but I just went for it, and so far it's been nice. So
0: yeah. So the first event you hosted was the "I'm Not Your Fortune Cookie." Exactly. Wow.
1: Yeah, it kind of blew up after that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Was was damn and orientation. I thought they host similar kind of things, but they weren't.
1: Um, They did like a film festival and like summer parties and stuff like this, but not really... Oh, and like, like readings and things, but not really the type of parties were for entertainment in a sense. Mm. And I mean, as an alternative educator, I believe that you can learn a lot through fun and play. Yeah. And um, so I want people to want to come to these things and step away from that academic realm of like symposiums and stuff like this. Yeah. I wanted to really curate a space where people felt comfortable to come and they, they could leave and also question and talk, like have conversations with people when, if they weren't really sure of what didn't understand what they were hearing Um, So I always invite, like, a different range of people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so the one that I first went to, I only go to 10 for the first, I think, hour. Mm -hmm. But that was when you had gave everyone stickers and then you Mm -hmm. had a bunch of graphs and then people at the place where they felt they existed along this graph mm-hmm. and i think like one of them was like do you ever wish you were not asian mm-hmm. or or maybe do you ever wish you were white and i think everyone everyone put uh yes
1: i think there were like five participants that put no and one person came up to me and said that they never felt that way because they grew up in an predominantly- in china yeah exactly yeah. so they grew up in asia and when they came here they were ready to develop, you know yeah um but I think those who had grown up in Asia also perhaps also wanted that. But yeah, at some point, most of the participants, 75% had wanted to, at some point in their life, be Asian, wish they weren't Asian. And um, yeah, I mean, when I asked this question, when I came to think of this question, it was based on, I guess, my own experiences when I used to wake up wishing I weren't You're Asian. awake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just not Asian. It could have been anyone else. Just not Asian. I think I I got away with being passed as an Islander, which f- for me felt better than being Asian for some reason. But of course, that has to do with whiteness because that is the superior, let's say, racial construct that that they've been able to establish, and a lot of people believe that whiteness is better than anything else. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, I didn't want to be Asian for that reason because I was made to believe through society and its structures and history that being Asian uh, means that you are not as worthy of something or belonging to, to the nation state. So sure, it did have to do with being white. And I mean, I grew up in predominantly white society. So most of my friends and people around me, apart from my family, were white. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I noticed that was really successful about your, your workshops. And I think that has to do with the fact that you are an educator. And so that helps inform a lot of the types of activities you do and how to, it's, you know, I guess you could, I see the workshops as sort of like a class mm-hmm. classroom sort of situation. And I was with a friend for the last one you hosted. So he mm-hmm. hosted number three, which was lost Monday. Monday time. Time's sort of a blur <laughs> right now for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then I was with a friend and she, um, Yvette, was there and she's also, she does that for her job, which is, oh. she, she does like cultural competency for Germans trying to be international business people. I see. So, she, um, but she was really, really interested in the whole dynamic of how you were running it and, mm-hmm. and she was looking at it from a, from an educator perspective. Mm-hmm.
1: And what did she think?
0: (laughs) Well, she thought it was great to not have to be the teacher for once. That's what she said. Mm -hmm. And she enjoyed the dynamic that you had with Sarah in the sense that, like, there's two of you. And I think something that, that, um, and I've talked to Yvette about this, is like, you know, there's, especially when dealing with such complicated issues, it's always nice to have another person to be up there because then... I always say, I mean, my my critique of these workshops is that I think they're valuable, but I think most of the learning happens through dialogue between two people who are well-versed in the subjects already. Mm.
1: I mean, I feel this is like I've been looking for someone to work with for a while now. And uh, I'm so happy that I'm working with Sarah Nakvi. She's amazing. Not only just like an intelligent and lovely person, but just our vibe is the same. So that's cool. But yeah, it's also very dangerous to have only one person facilitating such an event because, of course, I am giving my very limited knowledge and experiences and basing my opinions and my reflections on participants and like how the workshop goes solely from my own reality, and I think that this is uh, very too narrow and very problematic, and so I think it's um, nice to collaborate with people, and I hope in the future we can collaborate with other experts. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: And also, I don't know. I mean, I've I feel like when you're also in dialogue with someone, I, I like I think the most of the, the stuff that I personally learned is by listening to two people in dialogue with each other, mm. more so than than the workshops. Like I I attend the workshops, I'm interested in them in order to like see the type of dialogue that's happening Mm -hmm. but i feel like for my own personal growth and it also could just be me is like hearing two people talk and then me then able to formulate what worked from the two sides of the arguments and learning from it Mm -hmm. and i think that also works in terms of co-teaching because with something like this you can also see two different perspectives Mm -hmm. obviously sometimes they're more close than others depending who the people running it or the educators are, but it allows at least a back and forth in which mm-hmm. there's a certain support, both for the people running it or teaching it, but also support in the sense that the combined voices, I feel like also adds
1: depth depth Mary?
0: and urgency in a way that a singular voice can sometimes feel very like dictatorial. Yes, dictatorial. completely.
1: I mean, I think that this is what I learned from the second workshop. Um, the first workshop was very much just conversations between everybody, and then the first, the second workshop, it was like me giving racism 101, and like I felt really uncomfortable doing it, and like a lot of people said like it was so unnecessary, and some people said oh that was really great, but I just feel like I'm not really equipped to do such a thing, and um, I don't think anyone is. Yeah, and and so I I completely feel like the workshops are spaces for us to connect, to grow together, to discuss, to empower one another. And that's what I hope to to facilitate, like, these spaces more so than the information. And, like, after the workshop, I actually felt a little bit strange
0: and, like... This past one. Yeah. And in a
1: sense that I'm like, oh, I feel like I should have given more info and all these things. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's just my, like, teacher kind of attitude that I want to, like, give knowledge. But in the end, I think facilitating a space is enough. Yeah. And then we can do the growth and learning together yeah and I kind of just want to start this discourse of like let's talk about it otherwise it's just gonna continue yeah um let's let's think of alternative ways of like creating new I don't know new Dialogues. structures yeah. yeah within our society um and so yeah I guess we there's just not much solidarity within the community and when I wanted to react against the happy ending party, there was nowhere really to go. There was no structure that was already implemented that I could really be like, hey, I want to do something. And for a group of people be like, yeah, let's do it. And that's what I'm trying to build for, for people not to feel alone and also for a platform where we can share like our exhaustion of just yeah.
0: existing as
1: Asian people.
0: And it could be I'm also coming at a time when things are happening. Yeah. Because yeah. at least in the past year, it felt like there was a community. Because like when Atlas came out, so Atlas mm-hmm. Atlas was a play that recently was, I think it came out in Leipzig, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? And it by this German director, white German director. Austrian. Austrian. Uh, Aus-
1: Austrian writer, I think. But yeah, maybe German director. Yeah.
0: And so the Austrian writer interviewed a bunch of, I believe, Vietnamese stories. Mm-hmm. And then did the entire theater play cast by white people. Mm-hmm. And so basically, it was just a yellow facing. yeah, and yellow facing and erase the actual people that were being interviewed, and then it won a prize. Yeah, and so but so that caused a lot of um, uproar, <laughs> uproar, and um, it was very problematic. But the speed at which it happened to me suggested a sort of community. Mm-hmm. Also, the same thing with the um, the ad. What was Humba. the ad? Yeah, yeah, it was saying like Asian people smell. Or Asian women? Was it? Yeah,
1: it was just like this Asian woman, re- like receiving a state of ecstasy after sniffing a white man's sweat, sweaty undergarments.
0: And so, but like there was uproar behind that, and then with the photographer Iraqi. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like to me, when I, as someone who just came in last year, there was yeah. a lot of stuff happening. So that's why I was sort of interested.
1: I think that with now how social media has become such a huge part of our lives, uh, there's a lot of people using it for social movements. Um, I believe in the US there are and Ameri- um, Australia also I've seen via social media. I have talked to a lot of German people and they said like it only started like actually last year and a lot of people say from my event yeah, um, that it sparked a lot of empowerment within people that to- – to take action and I mean there's a very simple structure I would say that usually social change and social movements happen when there is something that affects a community uh, for a response and then there's organization then there's like an outcome and hopefully the social movement can turn into something sustainable where the community becomes much more empowered and informed and structured. And I think that's definitely happening. And I'm really happy to to be in the midst of it. And definitely from the Atlas scandal, let's say, you can really see how, how organized and how many experts we have within our community. Yeah. Which is really great.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what is your next eye eye and what would you do differently for the next one?
1: Oh, that's a tough question.
0: (laughs) Maybe it's too soon.
1: It's maybe too soon. I mean, Sarah and I still haven't talked because she just left for holidays. I mean, we're, we're just really happy because we, yeah, focus more on activities than kind of talking and passing on our knowledge. But I think I would like more of a balance with that. So maybe, yeah, figuring out how we can prompt more conversations in and give more like feminist terminology in order for people to feel more equipped uh, when having discussions outside of eye to eye. Yeah, I think a lot of people, from my experience, I feel like we're in a very lucky situation where we have the vocabulary to explain how we feel through terms coined by feminists yeah. and other scholars that really help us better articulate ourselves. So I would like to be able to equip other people with this who might not have had the chance or, or yeah, haven't learned it because I really feel like it has helped myself. I would also like to maybe incorporate people outside of – because everyone who – participate at the workshops are usually around our age, so between 20 and 40, and educated. Mm. And I would like to... And English-speaking. And English-speaking. So I'm very... It's not very inclusive, I would say. I think a lot of people don't feel like they would be able to come or comfortable to come, and I would like to try and figure out how to make it more inclusive. Uh, which is why I'm super happy that Sarah is um, with me because she's German. And so that's like a plus, a huge plus. But I think I have made that, I've created that kind of uncertainty due to me being quite open and direct with the fact that white people should not attend. And I post a lot about it. Yeah. Um, And I'm always up for a discussion or maybe argument with people And a lot of people always say they can't win because I just talk about white fragility and they have nothing to say.
0: Were people still complaining? No, actually. Thank goodness. It's like... What what happened?
1: It's been a while. I don't know. I think (laughs) like I just shared enough articles and maybe people were like starting to realize what I was trying to do. That racism isn't just about them. It's about the world. (laughs) It's a global issue.
0: Yeah.
1: A lot of people were like, I feel personally attacked. I was like, okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, my friend Yvette, she's she's black, but she kept asking me, like, am I taking up too much space? Mm. So it's definitely, I think, on the minds of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I would feel the same way if I attended, like, a Latinx or a black mm-hmm. uh, similar sort of workshop. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult question.
1: Yeah. It's um, an and I mean, I'm, I know that I'm quite a direct person and maybe, how would I say this, too aggressive in a sense?
0: You, are, you think you're aggressive?
1: Maybe in, okay. in the way that I post online, mm. uh, how I utilize my social media, I kind of just like no filter, no bullshit. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe that makes people feel uncomfortable attending because they don't know if, if, like, then they would be taking up space that they shouldn't be in. Yeah. And I would, like, yeah, hope that people who should be attending feel comfortable attending. Yeah, I mean it's a growing process, and I'm um, I'm really happy that I get to grow every time I, I facilitate one of these workshops, and I'm really grateful that I get to do this too. Like one of the uh, things that I hope that comes out of my workshops is that the um the German dias, the Asian German diaspora people in academia start to coin their own terms, yeah, based on the history, based on their own experiences, and. Like all of these socio political social constructs are very complex, and I, I believe that it's always uh, subjective. Like people's experiences and people's understanding of it is subjective, you know? Yeah. Um, We're experiencing so different, and um, we have different information. And I think that, yeah, for myself, I use a lot of American terms and uh, research. I think that's very, very problematic, and I think that uh, one should always kind of be open-minded to realize that it's not necessarily able to be applied everywhere.
0: Yeah. 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 I don't mean it's bad that I'm learning the different perspectives, but I think for the workshop, it complicates it because then the purpose of the initial intention of the workshop Mm -hmm. never gets to it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I thought about in terms of, so the your past eye to eye, I don't think any, I realized none of us knew what was the topic was, um, was
1: internalized, racism, internalized racism and whitewashing and
0: whitewashing and then i realized even among people who i thought we knew what it meant we didn't quite even know what it meant oh which is which is fascinating because there are people who never heard of the term but then a few of us so jordan alex and my friend yvette we got burgers after and mm. then even among us four we didn't we couldn't come up we with... couldn't we couldn't come up with a consensus of it which It's not bad, but then it also makes having a workshop where we assume we know what it means to then, as a first step, to then do the actual workshop thing. Mm -hmm. uh, It added a certain complication that was interesting to see. And yeah.
1: I mean, this is also like this being the reason why I was not. As content as I thought I would have been after the workshop is because I had done so much research before yeah. prior to the workshop, and I didn't want to take up too much space by giving this one hundred and one again. Um, yeah. But then I felt like I could have given so much more information, and perhaps that would have aided in the discussions that were to be had in the burger joint. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's just. Um, I particularly wanted to connect it with whitewashing because I saw how problematic it is and how it kind of dispersed globally to, to think that, again, whiteness is superior to anything else. And I, I wanted to think about how racism is usually placed upon our bodies rather than our souls and um, how that's connected again to whitewashing because we our race is on our skin on our face, it's, it's not with like, it's also within us, of course, within our, um, the way culturally, that, exactly. But, um, it's attacked by, by people because they see us, you know, mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily always because they know us. And yeah, I just wanted to, for us to really kind of, uh, start to look at that, how, how our vehicles, the embodiment within our vehicles, the thing that, we, we probably want to change the most mm-hmm. uh, the exterior uh, because there are so many cultural things that we love about our heritages right and that's one thing that I forgot to do I really I, I had put it on the list to do but at the end that we all share something that we really love about our cultures because mm. a lot of the times it was like what do we hate about ourselves <laughs> what do we working? change how can we change yeah. it what did it, what was it that we wanted to change how can we forgive ourselves for that? And it was like a lot of pain and and then a lot of realization and, and and the process of healing, but I really wanted to close it off by being like, you know what, well, we're amazing people. We're just as good as anybody else, and for us to acknowledge that. And uh, I forgot to do that, and I was really upset. Yeah.
0: You want to talk about Rice's life, or you, you're, were, uh, I don't know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I could just say that Rice's life is probably one of the nicest side projects I started that, it's very dear to my heart because I think food was the only connection to my heritage that I allowed myself to have.
0: Really? Yeah. So for you, what is, do you consider Vietnamese, Chinese, and Thai all your food or is there yeah. one? All of it. Okay. I so, mean, you grew, so you grew up with all three.
1: Exactly. I grew up okay. with all three. You're lucky. Yeah, totally. It was amazing. When I moved out of home, I was so sad. <laughs> But, um, yeah, it was, like, a mix of them all, but also there are very specific dishes that have been passed on through my ancestors, and um, this really helped me. Like, I love food also, so it was just, like, a way for us as a family to come together to do something because my family is huge and we would always cook together and, and talk about different methods and, and then sit down and enjoy this food together, and it was, like, a special thing that I always – had within my like family that I didn't have to share with other people or other people didn't have to, I didn't I, it wasn't exposed to the white gaze and it could be free and mm. we could speak all of our like languages and I never thought
0: about that. Yeah. That the home cooking is free from the white gaze.
1: Exactly. It was like almost I mean my name is Western, my my mother tongue is Western, everything, my clothes Do you
0: have a a Chinese I or Vietnamese have a Chinese or Thai name? name? You yeah,
1: do? yeah. Chang Hong Li. Chang Hong Li. Um, but, um, yeah, no one calls me that apart from my mom when she's angry with me. <laughs> she says the whole thing? She says hung Lee. Hung Lee, okay. Uh, she doesn't use it that often anymore. I guess I've been pretty good. Uh do you,
0: do you, would you, do you not identify with that name? Not really.
1: Okay. In a sense, yes. If I were to hear it, of course I would have some connection, but no, I mean, not, no one in my family even calls me it. Like, there are some members in my family who get called by their um, Chinese name or Vietnamese name or Thai name. But for myself, it was my English name that stuck. And, um, yeah, so for me, food was a huge part of my cultural identity. And I realized that I wanted to share that with other people and for other people to realize how important food is and um, how it can connect people and how you can share um, someone's, Kind of heritage with them through better understanding how important it is and, yeah. and just acknowledging it and enjoying it yeah and
0: so so what exactly what was the first iteration of that
1: I cook a lot for my friends and I cook a lot for one of the families I used to work for as a nanny and cook and they told me I should do something with my food and so I my friend had this has a cafe and I asked her if I could just, like, rent it out one night. She said, sure, and so I did and hosted a pop-up dinner and it was a huge success and Rice's Life was a funny name that I saw on a sign once and I was um, it just came up to my mind that uh, all the most of the dishes that I cooked with my family had some form of rice element, like rice noodles, rice paper, rice flour, different rice grains mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, it was so versatile and it was, you know, rice itself is like a binding agent and you can accompany it with so many different things and i thought that was quite a beautiful thing that within all my heritages it's it's widely used in different forms and ways and how we can bring people together and how delicious it is and yeah how it's a staple of life within many villages also including the villages that my ancestors came from and yeah
0: um how often do you host these pop-ups
1: they used to be monthly, but now with my activism work, I really just don't have a lot of time. Okay. So it's kind of just whenever I have the time and energy to do it because it's um one-man show, one-woman
0: show, let's say. <laughs> Gosh, say, yeah. man, Jesus. It's hard to escape the patriarchy.
1: It's totally. i But, yeah, so right now it's kind of sporadic and whenever okay. I have time, but I'm always catering for the voicemail events that damn
0: um, curates. Oh, so yeah. 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 Is there anything else you want to talk about that I missed?
1: No, that was like a nice chat. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you want to end with something that you are proud of about your culture or heritage? <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. Since you didn't get to do it at, at the last eye to eye. Yeah, true. Okay. You could both do it. Oh,
1: I need a little bit of time to think. Hmm.
0: And you have three to choose from, right? Exactly. That's the hardest You thing. could pick three. Yeah, You I could, could pick one. Totally,
1: right? I think um so I grew up in a somewhat Buddhist family but we're not we never really say we're Buddhist but we have traditions that are revolving around Buddhism and we pray a lot on certain dates to remember our ancestors and I think this is one of the most beautiful things because through this connection I better understand who I am why I am this way and and also I remain grateful for, for everything I have, mm. and that was paved out for me. Mm. Yeah.
0: I think the thing I'm proud of is the food. <laughs> I think of all the sure. different foods I've been exposed to through Chinese culture. And yeah. so it's sort of mind-boggling, actually, Yeah, to think about it, like being exposed to <laughs> to tripe or cow stomach yeah. as, as a young kid and not really thinking about it. Or even a few years ago, I was at a Chinese restaurant in California, and they, like, served, like, they had soaked grapefruit skin mm-hmm. in the sauce. and
1: Yeah, it's like the rind. The
0: rind of the grapefruit. And, yeah. and I think, and it's like, and half the time I don't know what I'm eating because yeah, my family's just ordering stuff, and exactly. I'm, I just assume... That whatever is being served is edible, and I don't think about what it is. <laughs>
1: of course, it's all edible. No, no, I know, but, yeah. but like
0: you know, you know it's edible. So and 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 I've trusted my family, yeah. <laughs> my family, family, extended family, that whatever is being served is 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 edible and not won't kill me. So there's that trust that happens. And I remember when the the uh, grapefruit rind came out, my mom didn't even know what it was, and she asked, and then she like had to ask again just to make sure, and then yeah. she's like, "It's grapefruit rind," and I was like, oh, "Okay." just ate it and it was fine but it was just yes. sort of like i didn't even consider that edible
1: really yeah
0: i guess you've had it before
1: uh yeah we make like i think um uh, in the villages that we came from our ancestors came from uh it was quite poor so they would have to pickle a lot of things mm. and i mean in my last rice is life um pop-up I, I made watermelon rind pickled
0: really yeah
1: okay. and i ate it with moi uh juk. Okay. Yeah, and I loved it. Uh, to- yeah, and that's uh, my favorite. People were like, "What? You can eat this?" And I grew up eating it. I grew up eating. We made use of everything. It was like yeah. almost zero waste. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think that's the nicest thing also about co- our cultures, right? Like um, we eat everything and like different techniques, but also what was um, available. Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah. All right.
1: Yay. So I guess
0: I guess food and praying for ancestors. Alright, well thank you, Vicky.
1: Thank you for having me. Yeah.
0: Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Zi Yuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.